0: Welcome to the No Faction Podcast. I'm the host, Nevada Ryan. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Walter Ben Michaels. Walter is professor of English at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's the author of numerous books, perhaps most notably, The Trouble with Diversity, how we learn to love identity and ignore inequality. Today in our conversation, we cover a range of issues from the role of race and class in American history, to the difference between a diversity or identity-based version of equality and a more economic-based one. We talk about the connection between education and the labor market, the origins of the SAT, and many other topics. I've been a fan of Walter's work for many years now and was honored to get this opportunity to speak with him. I enjoyed our conversation very much and I trust you will as well. Without further delay, I bring you Walter Ben Michaels. All right, I'm here with Professor Walter Ben-Michaels. Walter, thank you for doing this. glad to be here. Um, Many of the people who uh, read my newsletter and follow my work will be familiar with you and and what you're up to, but for those who aren't and just for form's sake, would you mind giving us your potted biography?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm currently and have been for the last 20 years a professor of English at University of Illinois Chicago before that, I taught at uh, for a long time at Johns Hopkins, and before that, for a long time at Berkeley. Um, my main kind of academic focus has been on American literature and literary theory, but over the last twenty years, I've been writing more about, uh, or also about, uh, politics. I wrote a book called *The Trouble with Diversity*, that came out in about two thousand five, two thousand six, and out of that has come a lot more writing. It's basically interested in the relation between the increased commitment to diversity, um, the increased interest in a commitment to many, many forms of anti-discrimination in the US over the past 20, 30, 40, even half century. Um, And the fact that that commitment is more or less intensified simultaneously with the increase in economic inequality, that is there's been kind of inverse relation, the way of put it is that the more we talk about, and actually the more things we do about diversity, um, the less we've done about uh, economic inequality. So that now the US is basically as unequal as it's ever been, certainly since the 1920s, um, and the commitment to diversity has not only not inhibited that, in fact, I argued in many ways, it's enhanced it. So that's been so I'm here to talk to you today, presumably not about my views on the role of intention in literary meaning, or <laughs> American literature, or on what I write about now—a lot of photography, but, but about diversity and what's at the limits of diversity um, as a technology for increasing equality.
0: Sure, thank you, appreciate that. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about the uh, the main thrust of the of the book, The Trouble with Diversity, which has been really instrumental for me, and I know a few of my my peers and, and other friends who. Um, or not really being able to see the, um, the the distinction that you make, which is between basically two different versions of equality, right? There's a kind of, I don't know what we call, maybe neoliberal diversity, inclusion, identitarian-based one. And then there's a maybe older social democratic or socialist economic-based one.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, older and hopefully hopefully also newer. <laughs> but uh, right. there's a... I mean, since we're, you know, focused a bit on education, you can, it's easy to give examples in education. And a lot of it, you know, another thing that's been true is that the more unequal we've become, the more obsessed our society has become with education as a way not so much of equaling things out, but of justifying the inequality. And maybe we'll come back to that. But, you know, Harvard's been a lot in the news the last couple of days, because they're just giving, they're given like $100 million to... Um, as a kind of form of reparations for the mm. fact that hundreds of years ago, the founders were involved in, uh, in, uh, in slavery, which is no doubt true. Um, so if you look at, at Harvard, Harvard has a kind of real commitment to diversity and they're different from some other institutions in that they're actually rich enough to make good on it. So if you look at, I just checked you know, a few minutes ago before we came on the air. If you look at, um, they're entering first year class this coming year will be 15.9% black. So, the actual American population is about 13.2% Black, so that's slight overrepresentation. It'll be 25% Asian American, that's a lot of overrepresentation. It's sort of a parallel issue. It'll be 12.5% Latino, which is somewhat underrepresented. And it'll be about 45% White, which is actually also somewhat underrepresented. But by any standard, that's kind of a success in diversity, and especially insofar as diversity has appropriately uh, f- uh, focused on African Americans. It's very successful. So if you look at Harvard now, I Harvard 50 years ago, they're like way, way more diverse than they are. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. That's actually a good thing. Uh, but during the same period right, in which they become more and more diverse, it actually, the, the student body at Harvard has become you know, richer and richer. So basically right now, something like um, 60%, I think it's maybe 58% of Harvard's undergraduates come from the top 10% of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, So students from the bottom 90%, the bottom 90% is like nine-tenths of everybody in the country, make up actually less than half the students at Harvard. And students from like the the lower 20% are basically almost non-existent. There are a couple of them. So you wanna say two things have happened. Harvard's become more diverse. And if what you think of, if you think of equality in terms of uh, racial and ethnic equality, then it actually is more equal. People are represented more or less in the same proportion they are in the population. But if you think of equality as financial equality, that is as equality as it were between classes, Harvard's not, only become, not become more equal, it's become less equal. Um, it's really basically a school for rich kids. Um, and actually, the part of the point of Harvard is that it's not, I mean, it's, it's more successful with diversity than many because it's rich um, because its endowment enables us to do that, but it's not unrepresentative. I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of um, of student wealth, Harvard actually not one of the worst offenders. I mean, smaller liberal arts colleges. I was actually shocked myself, and I don't exactly do this for a living, but do it for part of my living to read that. Like Colgate, the median family income is two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's mm-hmm. the median family income. Half the kids at Colgate come from families making over $250,000. Um, same thing is roughly true, play like Washington and Lee, where it's 261. Actually, I just looked at my notes here, Colgate's $270,000. You and I, you can't remember it right. So it's <laughs> a, a university system um, in which the elite colleges, um, that is the colleges, you know, which are the most in demand and which will then produce, as they always say, not incorrectly, leaders of American society are basically, it's rich kids and rich kids out. It's completely maintaining a kind of hegemony of wealth in the U.S. So if one's idea at some point had been that uh, the point of the university was to serve as a kind of engine of equality, the exact opposite is what's happened. The university system has turned into an engine of inequality. Um, it's As I say, it's just basically, it, it, it preserves wealth. And preserves wealth from one generation to the next and it but and, it, and and the fact of Harvard you know making this big gesture now and producing a hundred million dollars um, as a form of reparations is actually a kind of pure version of that. you know uh, if you're if what does the, the demand for equality that we might make on our institution of higher education, what does that have to do with like you know, Paying debts that you figure owed from 250 years ago, you got lots of poor people in this country who they could have arrived yesterday. They could have arrived 100. Their families arrived 100 years ago. It doesn't matter really. it doesn't matter what their you know what their what their race is. Um, they're actually as we know that like the majority of poor people in this country are white. Um, so why what what exactly are we doing for most poor black people today? all poor white people today, all poor uh, Latina, Latina people today, by saying we're gonna make up for, you know, the horrors of slavery from 250 years ago. And the two things have nothing to do with each other, but it's understood as a kind of gesture toward, more than a gesture toward a kind of powerful, hundred million dollar gesture toward a kind of equality. When in fact, it's, it's not even quite a smokescreen. What it is, is a way of sort of defining equality so that what it means is equality between races and making equality between races substitute for actual equality. And the kind of purest way to see this overall, and this was the original sort of argument of the trouble with diversity, and it's come back in lots of different ways. It's as if the neoliberal ideal of a just society was not a society in which economic inequality was minimized, but was a society in which the people who were making the most money, let's say the top 1%, the top 10%, just actually matched ethnically the makeup of the population. As if we'd been so the original kind of little thought experiment was, yeah, suppose like, like supposing you could just, you know, wave a magic wand and make contemporary discrimination disappear. And you can then wave the magic wand one more time and make the all the kind of history of racism and sexism disappear. So then what would you have? You could have like the top 10% of your population and income would be instead of being black people being underrepresented, they'd be 13.2%. Instead of white people being overrepresented, they'd be like 59.9%. Everybody would be the right percent. And the same thing on the bottom. Instead of black people being overrepresented on the bottom, black people would be 13.2% on the bottom. So from one standpoint, you'd have a kind of justice who is racially representative, racially proportionate in every decile of American wealth. Would you have a more equal society? No, you actually have exactly as unequal society as we have. What you've done is say our ideal of equality is satisfied if like the mega rich are in the right proportion of all the different races and sexes and genders and sexualities, whatever identity category we have. So the point was that a kind of vision of equality in which anti-discrimination is, you know, the be all and end all is a vision of equality, which doesn't actually affect the fundamental economic structure of our society. And in that respect, you know, what's often thought to be kind of radical commitments to, um, you know, well, versions of Black Lives Matter, um, which would be the most recent instance, of this, are not really radical at all. They're fundamentally conservative. They're concerned with representation, representation at every level. Whereas if you're a socialist, you're not concerned with representation at every level. You're not concerned that, you know, there'd be the right number of black people who are like mega wealthy. You're concerned with getting rid of people who are mega wealthy. actually you don't want to get rid of the people. You want to, get rid of the, you want to take away their wealth. So mm-hmm. what you're concerned with is actual equality, not this kind of fantasy of equality that, you know, I and some others argue is what we substituted for it.
0: Yeah, you say in um, that non-site article you wrote, uh, Political Economy of Anti-Racism, that uh, compared to a a radical redistribution of wealth um, something like reparations would actually be kind of moderate. (laughs) It's not at all radical.
1: You know, what it is, is that, uh, I mean, it's super moderate in two ways. One is the kind of practical way, which is that, you know, reparations is hard sell, um, but you can see it happening in various ways. Uh, Like, you know, little North of where I live in Chicago, Evanston has put in uh, a law where if you can show, that your family, um, that you or your uh, immediate ancestors were harmed by the redlining practice, which were very real in Evanston. So you couldn't get like access to a mortgage. You couldn't buy a house um, because you were black. Um, Evanston will advance you like $25,000 for a down payment. So it's not a fortune, but it's not nothing either. Um, And the idea there is that, okay, that is a, a kind of reparations. But one thing you want to say about that, is, I mean, first thing you want to say, why is, why is the only accepted route then for reparations that you're poor because of racial discrimination? What if like you're poor because, you know, your grandfather was in a union? And his union got busted. If we look at like the history of unions in the U.S., mm-hmm. we see the decline of the union movement over the last 50 years. And so, and, you know, his his pension disappeared and now you're, you know, a poor white person. So why, 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 why shouldn't that story also like qualify you for some kind of reparations? But then you realize right away, there's like a further point to make, which is that, well, what if you're poor and like your great-grandfather was, you know, whatever the horrible version of Elon Musk was back then. Mm. But like, you know, your grandfather lost it all. You spent it all on wine, women, and song. And now you've got nothing. So what we're going to say is, well, you know, if you're poor because of racism, then you get it. If you're poor because your ancestors were deprived of their, you know, union rights, then you get it. But if you're poor, just because you're poor, we don't care. That really has nothing to do with the universal commitment to socialism, universal commitment to equality to say, whatever reason you're poor, we actually want to be able to find you someplace to live. So there's a, you know, there's an important sense of which we're completely um, identifying our idea of um, injustice with something that was done wrong to you you or to your ancestors. And we're denying what should be a universal right, in this case, to housing. So it's like a way of putting it. Do we want to get everybody a chance to get back into the housing market? Or do we actually wanna make sure everybody has a place to live. So part of the, the socialist point is going to be, no, you want to decommodify housing. You want to make sure that everybody has a place to live. That's actually equality. And you don't care, you don't have to care what color they are, you don't have to care what um, you know, what ethnicity they are. You don't even have to care, you know, about anything about anything bad that happened to them. What you're saying is, no, it's a universal right. And the universality is kind of a crucial point there. And of course, our whole mechanism of so-called social justice is defined in opposition to universality. It's defined as social justice for uh, for minorities of various kinds. And why? Because it's defined above all in terms of discrimination. Whereas I want to say, you don't have to have been the victim of discrimination. We don't have to care how you became poor. What we're interested in is the fact that you were poor. And that's what does it. So the interest here is in a, you know, a, a politics that would be devoted to the working class, not in a politics that would be devoted to like those people who belong to the working class because their ancestors were treated unfairly, um, which no doubt they were. I mean, the point is not to deny that; it's obviously true. You know, there's no, there's no miracle um, of misunderstanding about why. Black people in the U.S. are disproportionately poor. It's the history of slavery um, and Jim Crow that has made black people, and uh, the continuing, you know, discrimination that makes black people disproportionately poor. But the goal here is not to make them proportionally poor, not to not to make them just thirteen point two percent poor. The goal is to eliminate poverty. Proportionality is like the thing that has led many people down a garden path to accepting this kind of injustice.
0: Your yeah. Idea? I was just, I was just going to say, um, to what do you attribute this shifting of the the version of equality? Because I, my understanding until recently was that it was kind of something that kicked into gear in I guess what we call the neoliberal era where, um, you know, people on the left had uh, assumed that capitalism was sort of here to stay and that rather than fight it on, economic grounds with a, a kneecapped labor movement um, instead it'd be easier to focus on equal representation at least we could win the battle that, uh, in that way but um, in your book you seem to suggest that maybe looking at it in this way in terms of identities maybe older I like, mean you, you quote that I think somewhat apocryphal uh, conversation between Hemingway and um, Fitzgerald um, and uh, you, you talk about how it manifests in uh, in the Great Gatsby. And so, is this something that's been with us for a while, or is this more so yeah. recently? I mean, I,
1: in a way, I think it's both things are true. So, start with the first one first. There is really some truth to the idea that, you know, people thought, I mean, the period between the end of World War II and the end of the 1960s was actually the period of greatest equality in, economically in America. Right. Um, and you had a, an economy that was rapidly expanding. And this is not just true in the U.S., right? This is, um, I mean, it's famously true in Europe, France. There was a you know, great 30 years where people did begin to think that, you know, when a capitalist economies are growing and they're growing fast, um, inequality may be increasing a little bit, but actually everybody's getting more. So it kind of, it's kind of rational to think, well, you know, I'm not gonna be that upset if like some guy above me is even farther ahead of me now than he was because I'm making twice as much as I was. So I'm fine. I think there was a period, you know, where people thought this is just like a fact of capitalist life. Um, and And the 50s and 60s would have been it. So one of the things that's really true is that people began were, were not focused. The, the problem of economic inequality, at least temporarily, didn't seem like as big ah, as it was. I see, um, and that's part of what neoliberalism does. What neoliberalism is part of the reminder, but that's in fact not the case. So I think that's historically true, but it's also true what you what you said at the last part, which is that um, racial identities always play this role. I mean, racism played this role. I. Um, Before I wrote The Trouble Diversity, I wrote an academic book called Our America, which is basically about race and racism in American literature, mainly between like 1890 and the 1920s. So there's a famous racist writer, hardcore white supremacist writer um, called Thomas Dixon. Um, His most famous book in the period, big bestseller was called The Klansman. Um, Klansman was turned into a very famous movie, The Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation was famously shown um, at the White House, Woodrow Wilson's administration, and and Wilson loved it. It's completely, I mean, Birth of a Nation is a very important movie in the history of movies. It's D.W. Griffiths, one of his two greatest movies. It's super important for the inventing of collage movies as various formal things, but it's also unbelievably uh, appallingly racist, white supremacist. Mm. Um, Dixon, has a scene in one of his novels which i've always thought was a really striking one um, and gets at the essence of what race did for him and that is um so somebody a black man has is, is raped the truth in every dixon novel black man rapes and murders an innocent white girl and in a small town in north carolina in which is partially set the whole town gets together and Dixon says, the banker is there, and the farmer is there, and the peddler is there, and the farmhand is there, and like the beggar off the street is there. And they all get together, and they all recognize in this moment of horror as they form what's about to be a lynch mob. right? They all recognize that the differences that separate them, the class differences, the difference between the banker and the guy who's sleeping on the street, those differences are completely submerged by the fact the one thing they have in common what's the one thing they have in common they're all white yeah. so all through all through the south and the north as well but in different forms the idea of race was always used to minimize to see race instead of class instead of you know if you're the rich man and I'm the poor man instead of me seeing you as my class enemy i see you as my racial brother so if you're the rich man, you totally want the poor white guys who are working for you and being exploited by you. You totally want them to see you as their racial brother rather mm-hmm. than as their class enemy. So racism itself was, I mean, was the, the power of racism, was precisely the power of, of, of the upper class to, uh, you know, develop kind of entire worldview in which racial identity seemed primary. The most important thing about you is whether you are white or black. And class identity, which is not even an identity, your class position was something that was deeply secondary. Um, That the fundamental thing that united people was their whiteness. And indeed to insist to black people, the fundamental thing that united black people was their blackness. And you can see how that kind of works. I mean, you know, if you think about it today, I often think, you know, when I first started talking about these kinds of arguments, um, I remember I was giving a lecture in Berlin, actually. And some guy said, well, don't you think, though, that, you know, when, when you get, uh, we were talking about faculty diversity, and someone said, when you get, like, the, fac, you know, when you get, like, a, the first black professors at Harvard Law School, that this is a great thing for black people everywhere. And you were thinking, about that, you know, do the, the white people, like, in community college, do white people in, in like, a... Uh, the slums of Boston, do they look over at Harvard and think, well, you know, it sucks that I can't go to Harvard, but it's so great that there are white people <laughs> like me who are still represented at Harvard. We don't expect any white people to buy that. Why the fuck should we expect black people to buy that? <laughs> right,
0: I mean, exactly.
1: You know, do them. So there's a, but, but you can see the force, of the thing, the force, of the thing is that it's always good for the upper class of whatever race, if the lower class of your race thinks, above all, we're brothers. Um, mm. So there's a way in which we've never had a class system in the US that actually didn't put racism to work for it. And now we have a class system in the US that also puts anti-racism to work for it. So there's a way in which, you know, race and capitalism are deeply, deeply connected, because racial identity is just like, super, super useful for doing bad things in a capitalist economy. Um, and, And we're at a kind of high watermark of that and today it is anti-racism but in my own interest this topic began exactly the opposite way it was in the work that racism did it was kind of like appalling to realize you know as you're working on this that actually now i mean the racism did bad work and was also bad in itself anti-racism is good in itself but actually the kind of work it does in the society now is just as destructive as the work that racism did in the 1890s yeah that um
0: part about the Dixon novel you just mentioned is absolutely fascinating for me because it it sounds there like race functions as a kind of equalizer or it cuts through the class differences uh, and deflates uh, any animosity that might have existed before but at the same time it seems it's the absolute inversion of a socialist or social democratic conception in which class cuts through race right so it's it's sort of upside down and i didn't know that there was anything like that in american history uh, to to that effect
1: if you go back you know dixon was i know more about this stuff than any person ought to just because for four or five years while i wrote the book our america was my scholarly specialty i've Mm -hmm. read more racist novels from (laughs) and and, you know you got lucky you 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 want to get them out of your house you know dirty reading them but you know there's um it's really interesting to think about so we have what counts as populism today which is almost entirely from the right but of course in the 1880s and 1890s there was the first major populist movement in american society mainly agrarian populists and they were um largely poor white people but in the south actually you had for a period of, and in North Carolina, especially for a period of about eight or nine years, you had a populist party, um, which had both black and white elements in it. Um, And indeed the kind of early slogan was black and white, unite and fight. Um, And the radical racism. So there's a great novel by the African-American author, Charles Chestnut uh, called the Marrow Tradition. Which I recommend to all your listeners. So you know, people just—it's first of all, it's just a really, really good novel.
0: The Marrow Especially Tradition. All,
1: it kind of depicts a certain moment in American history. It's a historical novel, and it's based on a kind of coup that took place in what was then the capital of North Carolina, Wilmington, in which a government had been elected—it was a pop, it was a fusion government—it had populists in it and it had Republicans. Republicans were primarily appealing to black people because it was the Democratic Party in North Carolina that was really white supremacist, And so it had populists and black people, poor white people, poor black people, some middle-class black people who gathered together and voted in effect their anti-racist and their economic interests, poor people with their economic interests. And the white industrial class and planter class actually engineered the race riot that threw that government out. And that in effect was the end of Black voting rights in North Carolina for over half a century. And why did they do it? Well, they did it in part because they were racist, but you know, that that matters, right? But what did their racism do? What their racism did was say, we don't want poor, you know, we don't want poor people, poor white people and poor black people uniting, poor white people and poor black people united, they're a majority. They're gonna take our property away. What we want to do above all is make sure that doesn't happen. Even the worst, you know, kind of laws in the South, the famous, you know, things that kept black people from voting, the poll tax, the literacy tests. So, and then they could, you know, when 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 you just did a poll tax, the literacy test, that kept a lot of poor white people from voting, too. So poor white people were actually totally complaining about that. And you got the whole grandfather clauses. Well, if your grandfather had voted, then you could vote, even if you couldn't write, you couldn't read, and you couldn't play the poll tax But even then it was, it was so it was completely racist. Poor black people couldn't, but it was above all serving a class purpose, which is that if all the black people and white people unite, there's too many of them, right? Poor blacks and poor whites. But if you actually, the poor blacks can't even go to the polls, right? You eliminated a large proportion of your enemy right away. If what you're interested in is perpetuating the interest of the working class. So there was never this kind of great article by the late historian uh, Judas Stein um, called uh, uh, The Political Economy of Racism. My, my essay that you mentioned before was oh, um, okay. a kind of tribute, meant to be a, tri- a tribute to Judith's sure. essay. And the point of it all the way through was that racism always served the interests of the, of the working class, the white I mean, the ruling class, the white ruling class. Um, And that nothing served their interests better than generating as much anti-Black sentiment from the white working class as humanly possible. Because if the solution for, you know, left populism was Black and white unite and fight, the kind of solution for the ruling class was Black and white disunite. You know, what we want to do is have Black people and white people absolutely sit against each other. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's no question the racism was real. Um, but there's also no question that it flourishes, precisely insofar as it can actually perform a function in a capitalist economy, and that function is in the class interest of the ruling class.
0: Yeah, no, what I found most uh, one of the things that I, I appreciated most about your arguments in general and in the book uh, specifically is how this diversity concept is not at all counter to capitalism; it actually dovetails perfectly. With it, um, and and this is something that really just kind of uh, discombobulates the um, uh, sort of sort of wing of liberal uh, or social justice type types because they, they tend to think that capitalism is somehow uh, discriminatory. But as you point out, you quote you know Gary Becker, the uh, kind of libertarian economist, liberal, yeah. yeah, the uh, uh, progenitor of, uh, of economism and all that. Um, he he says uh, capitalists don't they can't afford to indulge in the taste for discrimination because if you're a true capitalist and you want, then you want somebody who's going to take the lowest amount of pay and produce you the most amount of work. And if that person happens to be, you know, whatever identity you want to pick trans black Muslim or something you ought to pick according to capitalism, that person. Um, but if you're going to pick, you know, the, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, then um, you're not being a capitalist, you're, then you're being a racist, right? right? So there's a difference.
1: Right, no, I, I mean, and there's you know, all extensions of that. I mean, that's why you know, in terms of a related but not quite identical topic, open borders, all those guys were always for completely open borders. Because I mean, if you got 10 people in the room and you got 10 jobs, those 10 people can negotiate their, their salaries. You need 10 people. You, you can't afford not to hire them. So if they all want more money, they all want more money. But if you got 15 people in the room and you got 10 jobs, then you're negoti- if, you're the, if you're the guy who's, who's giving out the jobs, you're negotiating positions a whole lot stronger. That's what you know, Marx called the reserve army of labor. Mm. So if you can make the whole damn world your reserve army of labor, um, open those borders up. So and, you know, until, as we all know, until recently, the one, the one position the Wall Street Journal had held consistently for its entire existence was encouraging as much immigration as possible. Because what you wanted to be able to say was, look, you know, uh, you don't want to work for uh, $5 an hour, fine. We'll find the guy just off the boat or just over the border. And trust me, he'll want to work for $5 an hour. Where he came from, he wasn't making anything like $5 an hour. So, -hmm. you know, either you want to bring the labor force in. And of course, part of the whole neoliberal, you know, exportation of capital is that, you can't bring the labor force in. You want to take your factory out, so take it to where there is cheap labor. So you're you're looking for cheap labor wherever it goes. People who are looking for cheap labor are not like committed to their racism. <laughs> you know, they're not. They're what they're committed to is getting the labor. Um, so there's a way in which, you know, it, it's not it's, it's 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 not it's a kind of a racial equality but it's completely not an economic equality. That was the whole point for someone like uh, Becker. Becker used to talk about good inequalities and bad inequalities, Right. You know? So the bad inequalities were the ones where you, you didn't want to like not hire people because they were black or because they were women. The good inequalities were you wanted to hire them because they would work harder than everybody else and probably kill themselves doing the damn job. Um, and you just, you couldn't afford to care about the other things, like you said.
0: Um, back to uh, the effect of race uh, on the country's history in general. Uh, if we could tie that into um, education, so SAT tests, for instance, right, are, are sort of um, have their roots in IQ tests, uh, yeah. and then IQ tests, of course, have their roots in is kind of neo-Victorian race science phrenology bullshit. Um, so, what are your what's your take on um, standardized tests as a kind of uh, you know, metric for measuring things? or Do they have any use whatsoever well, or are they just a complete you know, joke? I
1: mean, I'm, I'm not at all an expert in this, but I, I remember reading, you know, sort of reading about it a bit. And I do think it really is true. I think it, in the origins of the SAT, as I understand it, maybe you know more about this, you correct me. I'm totally curious to hear. But I understand it, part of the origins of the SAT, right, were that people wanted under standardized testing for college admission was that you did have a kind of complete local for places like Harvard, just to stick with that. You know, you had a kind of regional group. You had a few feeder schools, which were feeder schools of rich kids. You know, they went to to Exeter or Andover, like that, or a few of the day schools in the East Coast. And that you had no way of sort of like um, measuring and and giving any credence to some kid like in, you know, in uh, Wyoming. Who'd gone to some public school that was nowhere near as good as Andover, um, and he had good grades, but what did that mean? Um, because the the standards weren't as demanding, and if you could produce something like the original fantasy of the SAT, which was that you know the aptitude parts were actually free of of content, so it was just measuring your intelligence, then the kid in Wyoming would have a shot, because the kid in Wyoming got you know like 780, and the kid who went to Exeter got 690, both of them good scores, but seven days a lot better than 690, you could say, well, okay, the kid in Wyoming doesn't know as much Latin as the kid got in four years at Exeter, but the kid in Wyoming is like super smart. He should be able to go to Harvard. So there was a kind of, you know, uh, I think egalitarian fantasy that was at the heart of that. And you can't, you know, reject the impulse altogether. As we all know, it didn't sort of work out that way. I mean, first of all, the aptitude tests are not, as it were, really aptitude tests. They actually require a whole lot of knowledge. And a lot of the knowledge is cultural knowledge that nobody quite realized was in there. So in fact, it was always never going to be as egalitarian as they wanted it to be. But I do think that the impulse toward it was egalitarian. Um, and you know, I know you do coaching this stuff. I mean, I don't know if to what degree people have still thought that you could coach the aptitude parts of the SATs. But of course, the minute you realized you could coach it, you really realize that the aptitude part was no longer as relevant as that been because the fantasy had been, no, this is the stuff that you're hardwired to be able to do and we'll be able to recognize it. And, you know, some, you know, and then, I mean, there are lots of limits because we all know also that some people are just good at test taking. And that is maybe a kind of aptitude, but it's not clear when it's found. So I, I am actually like a lot of professors, it was always really good at test taking, And I was good at even at test taking in math. I am one of the worst mathematics people. I mean, I'm like, no, oh, <laughs> I thought you told me there would be no math on this exam. i would English. But it was good at test taking. So I did okay on the math SATs. If I ever had to take any serious college level classes in math, I would have been totally fucked. Um, but you could avoid it. So you realize it didn't actually work for what it wanted. But I don't, I think it's a mistake to think that uh, some people sort of thought that the whole point of the SATs um, was to value a certain kind of racial cultural advantage. I think the whole point was to devalue that, but in fact, it, it didn't work it out, out at all like that. And then once once people like you got in the game, that is once you got to realization that no, you could take some kid and work with them for a few months and actually raise their scores by 30, 40, 50 points, then it not only was the question of valuing their kind of cultural background, then it was like, you know, it was, it, was, it was money. <laughs> That's yes. people who can afford to hire tutors. Are, their kids are going to get higher scores in this thing. So, yeah, it, it turned into just another. But it's not at all clear that taking the tests away is going to make you know college admissions more egalitarian. No, I mean, it's pretty clear that adding the tests didn't make them more egalitarian. But it's not obvious that taking them away is going to make them more egalitarian either.
0: Yeah. I'm not a, like an absolutist on this issue um, in terms of abolishing it or, or not. Um, I think that there still is a place for it. Um, you know, For instance, if, I mean, I basically like the, the example you mentioned a second ago, if somebody uh, didn't have a, a good education, but they could still show that they've got aptitudes anyway, that's one way that can register that. Um, another might be if you're a student who kind of, I don't know, screwed off for the first few years and then you start getting your act together, you can maybe demonstrate to an admissions officer, hey, look, I know my grades aren't that good because you know I slacked off, but here's my test score. So hopefully this kind of makes up for it. I
1: actually hopefully. think that, and that's sort of always been the case, which is that there have been, you know, I, I mean, I'm just, again, there's just remembering back, but also dealing with the students I've had since then. Some of the best students that, you, that I've had in college, have been um, students who really did not have any idea what they wanted to do in high school and basically spent, you know, most of their sophomore and junior years getting high and screwing around. Yeah. But they actually were bright kids um, and they did do, you know, not as well as they would have done if they'd actually worked hard in school, but they did do pretty well on standardized tests and they did tend to find, you know, that that actually, as they got older, they were getting more interested in stuff, and by the time they got to college, they got into college because the standardized test had gotten them in, and by the time they got there, they actually totally knew what they wanted to do, and they really got good. So you have some very strong students like that. But, you know, you should say also, you know, from my standpoint, um, the real problem with the college system is not, you know, fundamentally the problem of making access to it more egalitarian. Right. Um, I mean, if we're going to have this system, yeah, it'd be better for access to it, it'd be more egalitarian. But the real problem with the system is even if it were as egalitarian as you could possibly make it, its primary function is to enable inequality. You know, I always think about this. Um, so my mother in law um, is in a nursing home here in Chicago. And has been for now four or five years. So, we become familiar with the staffs of the nursing home, and you get right away, just by anecdotal stuff, that these are hard jobs and they're very underpaid jobs. So often, you don't see anybody for more than like three or four months. The staffs, the turnover is incredible because um, they're difficult and they and they pay so badly that people have to work them outside them. So I started getting interested. Both in that fact, and then just thinking about jobs in American society. And you know, you remember back in the Obama administration, Bob Obama's whole thing was everybody learned to code right. and jobs are increasing or all that. But that's not really true. It's not that those jobs aren't increasing, but the jobs that are increasing fastest, those uh, jobs that they are more and more of, are jobs like home health aid, um, just health aid in general, then various other kinds of service jobs. They're growing. Health aid and home health aid have been in the top two for now 10, 15 years. They're always growing. There's always more need for them. Frontline workers, as we learned to call them during during, you know, COVID, and are unbelievably quickly forgetting to call them that now that COVID is sort of over. Um, and those are really badly paid jobs. So you want to think, okay, you know, what can we do about that? Well, if we think about sort of think about the diversity version of it, they're really badly paid. And they're also like disproportionately women and disproportionately women of color. So the kind of anti-discrimination solution to that problem is to say it's completely unfair. And it is unfair, absolutely, that women of color are being forced into these jobs, um, which are completely, they're not even just dead-end jobs. They're like, you know, you just can't express how difficult they are um, and to do for so little money. So you want to say, what we want is to be able to give these women a chance to escape these jobs and to get better jobs you know, to be supervisors, to be doctors, to be um, registered nurses, to actually own the damn company that runs the thing. So, but we, we run into the same problem. So if you do that, you've made it more fair in the sense that like now a bunch of the people, you know, taking these jobs are like white guys. You know, if everybody had gone to like a version of UCLA or everybody had gone to a version of Harvard and everybody had the chance to escape those dead end jobs, and actually, you know, when you looked at the people who were taking the dead-end jobs, it wouldn't just be women of color. It wouldn't be the kind of discriminatory cesspool that it now is for these people. Yeah. But then you make it white, kid, white guys. So there's still terrible jobs. There's still jobs that people should not be required to do. And there's still actually important jobs in this case, right, that need to be done well. So you want to say there are two fundamentally different kind of principles at work here. One is, do we think that justice is giving everybody an opportunity to escape the bad jobs? And then whoever really can't take advantage of that opportunity because they didn't work hard enough or they didn't do well on the LSATs or whatever it was, they had the chance, they went to a great school like Harvard, they didn't do it, they're stuck in these jobs. Or do we think, no, actually, it's the jobs we want to change we're not so worried about who takes the jobs. We want to make it so that taking those jobs is itself a form of victimization. We want to make it so that taking those jobs are actually you can earn a decent living doing work that was made rewarding for you where you have some control of your autonomy, where you actually socialize the workplace. Um, so to me, it's a no-brainer. You know, there's no point putting a lot of effort into trying to like jerry-rig the system so a different group of people are forced into taking these inhumane, but important jobs. The point is rather to transform the jobs. Um, And that is in a way for me, the kind of fundamental issue in the kind of whole diversity apparatus. What the diversity apparatus wants to say is basically equality of opportunity is everything. Discrimination is the fundamental thing that stands in our way, in the way of equality of opportunity. If we can get rid of discrimination then actually everybody has a chance to rise. But the everybody has a chance to rise means in our society, the vast majority are not gonna rise. So do you wanna say, okay, well, you had a chance, so fuck you, no, it's on you now. Or do you wanna say, no, what you wanna do is create a society where the whole rising concept is not required to be so central. Where in fact, uh, a job that now pays $25,000 to a profit-making nursing corporation would pay seventy-five thousand dollars in a nonprofit-making nursing corporation, and that not just the money is involved, but the hours would be reasonable, and that in fact you would have some control of your workplace—the kind that you and I control and autonomy that we cherish in our workplace and realize is part of what makes it pleasurable, you know. So that all those things that actually make for a work life that would be, you know, attractive to people. And that even if they didn't love it, they don't have to go to work every day saying, oh my God, it's so well at work. If they don't go to work, they cannot stand and do this the other day and quitting three months later so that just from the standpoint of the consumer, your mother-in-law has to learn a whole new person. You have to learn a whole new person. You have to renegotiate how often they're going to be able to change her bed now, how do all the things that go with that, right? So you want a more humane society. The more humane society is not brought about just by anti-discrimination. So that anti-discrimination is important, obviously no one should be discriminated against. It's that it cannot solve the fundamental problem. And it seems to me that's what's been made so visible in the last 30 years of this rapidly rising inequality, which is that the fundamental problems aren't solved if everybody has a chance to succeed. The fundamental problems begin to solve if we begin to rethink our notion of what success is, and to rethink our notion of what success is by actually you know, enabling an economy in which the jobs that are now regarded as shit jobs that the whole point of an education is to allow you to escape are in fact treated as jobs that are worth having, And where on the other side, the rewards of of escaping them are nowhere near as high as they are. You know, my kids are both lawyers. I love my kids. I'm glad they became lawyers. And at least they're lawyers for the state. They aren't like, you know, lawyers for somebody's hedge fund which would be, if they were that, I would never bring it up publicly so. <laughs> with the shame, right? But what you want to, there is no world in which you know the lawyer for Elon Musk makes $2 million a year and the person who's taking care of someone you know, in the nursing home makes $25,000 a year. There, there, is no, um, there is no value system other than pure neoliberal economism that actually suggested anything just about that. Right. So that's what you'd like to change. And that's what we have, like no one trying to change. Well, we had Bernie Sanders trying to change.
0: We did. Um, yeah, this is one of the, the features of your, your work that's been most uh, illuminating for me. And that's you, you basically just expose the limits of the um, the liberal ideology of, of educational rising. Um, because you say, let's let's put a situation in place, hypothetically, where we've got Everyone has access to the best education. Everyone has access to the best concierge level tutors and everyone goes to a school as good as Harvard and, and just check all the boxes as much as you want. And then they, they pop out on the other end. And what happens? Well, you still need somebody to make your fucking lattes. You still need somebody to be a personal care aide. You still need somebody to be a mechanic. So now all you've done is you've created this sort of meritocratic humiliation where you say well you had your chance to be an attorney for goldman sachs uh, but now you're a personal care aide and you had the harvard education so deal with it and um you and, just and that, it really well <laughs>
1: that's that summary i should write it down because that's a <laughs> point it's exactly what it is
0: so uh and then so what what that then causes us to 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 look at is or to realize is that the, the problem with education uh is not really with education at all, it's with the labor market, it's with the, the greater society in which education institutions are embedded. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so that requires not an educational reform, but political, right? And then, so now, what does that mean? It means we basically need a kind of revival of a, of a labor movement, um, and I think- So there's a little hope, right, for that. I mean, every time you open
1: your paper, some, some Starbucks is unionized. Yeah. And more importantly still, you know, uh, Amazon. There's some progress in that direction. So that's a little bit hopeful. But you know what you're saying is is really right. I mean, you, you summarized it brilliantly there. It's exactly right. And it's funny because I, I mentioned you before. So I work a lot with there, are, you know, some people who share my views and we work together. So and one of the main ones is Adolf Reed, with whom I sometimes write so this piece on non Trouble public disparity. Mm-hmm. And Adolf and I have a collection of things we've done uh, separately and together coming out as a book. Uh, this summer called No Politics, But Class Politics. But Adolf was here last night and with a couple of other friends. Um, and we were all all professors, right? And we were all talking about, and some of us, Adolf and I, Adolf's now retired, uh, and I'm, you know, I've been doing this forever. But there were some younger people involved. We all were all talking about our ideal of what we'd like to teach. And, and, the, and the core of it was always cutting the teaching off, and cutting the studying off from the economic reward of the other end of it. So you're saying, you know, I'm teaching like American literature. If someone, you know, there's a limited number of people in the world who actually wanna read the Scarlet Letter and talk about it for a couple of hours. Um, Although if you removed a lot of the economic incentives, right, there might be some more of them, but whether there'd be more of them or not, it wouldn't be the issue. The issue would be, yeah, what education should be is sitting in a room with those people. I know a whole lot about the Scarlet Letter, I'm happy to talk to people the scarlet letter. You want to learn about the scarlet letter. You have things you want to say about the scarlet letter. Let's do that. I think that's intrinsically valuable. You know, it's part of like what a kind of, I, I so my great grandfather was uh, f- for a long time the president of what was then the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And I have a photograph inherited from him. Um, and I don't know who's in it, but it's a bunch of uh, young women who were working in, in you know in textile factories in clothes making um in new york in the 20s and part of what the union did was it gave them classes like in american literature Mm -hmm. so there's some guy he looks like a kind of parody of of a 1920s intellectual he's got kind of like you know a certain kind of hair a certain kind of thing and he's kind of you know, standing in front of the blackboard and they're all like making notes and doing things, you think, yeah, they, there's no, there's no, uh, they're not going to get better jobs out of this. The union is trying to make the jobs they have better jobs right now, but they don't have to say, no, I hate being a seamstress. They don't have to say, I hate being a cutter. They can sort of say, no, I like being a seamstress, I like being a cutter, but it's not my whole life. I also like it that after work, the union gives me the opportunity to go like, talk to about the scarlet letter with this guy. And then maybe meet someone too, we all go out and have a drink and talk about the Scarlet Letter afterwards or talk about what an asshole all our bosses or do what we do. So, you know, the fantasy of education really is exactly what you said. You can't really reform the educational system. You have to reform the labor market. And when you reform the labor market, one of the blessings that would be for the educational system would be to disarticulate it from the labor market. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't mean that there are still things. Yeah, if you wanna be a registered nurse, there are certain things you have to learn. So, but you know, 90% of what people learn in those classes, you know, what they're doing in the university is not required for most of the jobs.
0: It's not, the yeah. The degree is
1: required for the jobs. The ability to sort of talk about critical thinking and the abstract is required for some of the jobs. But we all know perfectly well that, you know, the college degree, the, the college degree is just a way of sorting out people. Um, not a way of actually sort of matching up. In fact, the most common complaint you hear from people, you know, employers is that they aren't matched to our skills. So you want to say, fine, create an educational system in which there's one year at some point when you make a decision of pure vocational stuff, you want to go into this thing, you do that. But there's those other years in which you're thinking, no, you can go do whatever you want. Or, Or once you're in the school, once you're just doing whatever it is, what you really want is an educational system, which is you know, paid for by the state and which is there precisely to enrich the lives of, of the citizens. So the people who are working down as CNAs down at the nursing home, my sense of focal interest in this, when they get done with it, they can go read Walt Whitman with someone who will, you know, be paid something to talk about Walt Whitman to them. And you realize that's a kind of, so weird, someone was sort of articulating this last night and there's like nine people sitting there, all of them nodding, all, of them, all of them. yeah. That's our fantasy and our fantasy is really people who just are sort of interested. and It's our job to get them, keep them interested and make them more interested and help them see what the value is for reading these texts.
0: Yeah. uh, It reminds me of uh, something I read from Aquinas. I don't remember where, but he makes a distinction between the servile arts and the liberal arts, the free arts and the servile arts are distinguished by the fact that they are done for some, functionary, utilitarian purpose. And then the free arts are done for their own sake, right. uh, just for the act of it. And so it really just sounds like a, like a pure liberal arts um, uh, yeah, like situation. Yes, but what, what a
1: certain fantasy of the liberal arts once was and ought to be. But of course, you know, when you're now at a public university fighting for public funds, what's the argument every administrator leaves with, leads with? Which is, we're good for the economy. You know, University of Illinois <laughs> is good for the economy. So it's like the idea that someone would go into the state legislature and say, yeah, you know, fuck all of the economy. What we're good for is providing people <laughs> something to think about. It. If that's, only. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, they'd have their job for another what, minute and a half um, because you're not going to get any money from the state doing that. But that's, again, I mean, that's why, you know, you're talking about. I, I, I was just reading, I think, in the paper yesterday or maybe it was even this morning. Um, that one of the things people were saying is, is and I think it makes sense, is that because of the persistent lack of certain kinds of jobs, which, you know, people younger than you are experiencing, much younger than me now, people coming out of college, um, there are lots of these jobs and Starbucks is obviously the kind of exemplary instance where, yeah, your barista is totally likely to have like a BA and actually totally possibly have an MA in creative writing or something. Yeah, so and they're saying that a lot of these, that a lot of the places where where um, they're organizing unions here is college-educated kids organizing unions. Mm. One thing, this is a kind of plus. I mean, I, I'm wearing this button. This is UIC United Faculty. It's our faculty union, which we actually founded about 15 years ago. Uh, the reason I'm wearing it now is because um, not so much for this as I didn't quite notice who was there until I saw there, but yesterday, day before yesterday our graduate students have been on strike for seven days they actually won their strike oh wow Um, and they are um you know they won an increase in pay but they'll make it still kind of reasonably small and they won various things which are important to sort of keeping them going Uh, and i was thinking you know when you're a graduate student in in literary studies today you're really like you know you really want to, you really have to want to, you really have to love literature and want to be able to write and talk about literature because the chances of getting a tenure track job that will pay you a, a living wage are increasingly small. Um, and you just have to be committed to it. You have to be, you're going to take your chance at the other end. You're going to maybe then turn to something else, but you have to really, really want to do it. And what I was thinking was, yeah, so what's useful about this though is that right now, these graduate students are getting two kinds of education. One is the education that we're providing. That is, you know, I just finished teaching an American literature course from basically Portrait of a Lady to uh, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, 10 novels, 12 novels in that sort of 20, 25 year period. So they got that. But they're also getting an education of what it means to actually try to combat uh, neoliberal capital economies, capitalist economies, that is, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, for sure 25 years ago, the job market would have been a bit better, but there were none of them unionizing. And they had no idea if you'd ask them, do you think it's important for you to belong to a union? They all would have like, looked at you blankly. All right. You know, what do you mean? But now you can't really plausibly be a graduate student in the humanities without realizing then the, the utility for you of a union. And that, my hope insofar as I have any for the future is that, yeah, the more people who realize that actually organizing workers to try to get what they want and what they need has worked, that it gets you some kind of, it gets you somewhere. I mean, there are obviously problems or whatever, but it gets you somewhere. When you learn that about your life, even if you get your MFA or you get your MA, if you get your PhD, but there is no job for this, instead you go to work as a, um, you know, an eighth grade teacher. Well, the Chicago Teachers Union is a strong union. You go to work for that job, they've helped make that job, not a job you want to escape, but a job that you could possibly have, you know, for your life and make a decent living and do something you really want to do. And then you just expand that to Starbucks, you expand that above all to places like Amazon and realize that what we ought to realize, which is that, you know, the working class is essential. What we want is a government that is a government that's governs in the interest of the working class were the vast majority of us. And that would be transformative. So, you know, nothing education can do. And I, I was sort of thinking, I think my class went, well, you know, I had a good time. They had a good time just getting their papers in now. They look interesting and all that. But I sort of think, you know, they, they learn more in the last three weeks leading up to this strike and then striking and negotiating the contract. They learn more from the strike than they were ever going to learn from me um, about Mm. ways to live their lives very directly. Um, And that's actually makes me feel better about the educational part. Makes me think, yeah, okay, weirdly, what we're teaching people to do is form unions in the English department, which was not our goal and is not on our curriculum. And it's completely forced on us by, you know, the rotten economic circumstances, but is actually of of some value. So, I mean, it's yeah. worthwhile for these, for
0: these kids. No, it's fascinating. Um, and it sounds like the, the university or just kind of a student environment in general as a kind of, um, I don't know, sort of a super barracks where everyone's sort of living near each other. It seems similar to or analogous somewhat to that like kind of a working class factory um, situation where people are talking, you know, and kind of yeah. radicalizing one another.
1: Well, I mean, the 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 you know, it's possible to build a kind of solidarity in that context. I mean, you know, it goes both ways. It's also, I think, it helps at USC that basically most of our student body is working class. You know, we're not like um, if you start looking at the median family incomes of places that I, we began by talking about. You know, more than half of our kids are, are Pell eligible, so they, they haven't got a lot of money. So they are they actually. You know, they don't band together to talk about like, uh, you know, they're not, they're not on Twitter a lot, you mm. know, and they're not actually fighting social justice wars. Really, their vision of what social justice is, has em- is emerging out of their own life experiences. So instead of taking moral positions about what's wrong in the world, which obviously it's important to take, but which is hard to build a politics out of. They're taking making a politics out of like what's wrong, you know, with their lives. When we organized our union, we were we we were trained to go visit people, you know, to go visit other faculty members. And what we're trained to do, the first thing was very simple but kind of useful. If you went, you set up an appointment to go visit somebody else in some department, and your goal was to try to get them to begin, first of all, to know about that you were trying to form a union and to then maybe get them to commit to taking part in some way. You know, gradually, you didn't expect everybody to sign right up, and they didn't, it took a while. But the first two questions were always, so what do you what do you like most about your job? And people would say, so if they're professors, you can say, well, I'm intellectually interested in it. I love my students, and, um, you know, and actually, I really enjoy the research, like that. What is it you don't like most about your job? And they would then say, I don't like, you know, basically, the conditions in my laboratories are appalling. I don't like the fact that so many decisions are made by the dean and we don't get to control our own classrooms, whatever it's gonna be. I don't like it, I don't make a uh, our raises have been non-existent for three years. Those things are all part of that. Because the point of the union was, we're not going in there and giving them a checklist of what are your politics, what do you approve of, and what do you disapprove of? And then you can join our union if you agree with us on the following fundamental things. The point of the union was, think about what would make your life better as a working person and think about what it would mean to, f- to gather together with other people in your workplace and to try to make all your lives better. So it, it was not you know, a moral one-upsmanship thing. It was like, no, these are the things that I care about every day. And then the further challenge about that as we began to have success was, so okay, let's not think only about what makes our interests what makes our lives better well let's recognize that the things that we're fighting for so when we were organizing way back when you know at one of our first big meetings when it became clear that we were probably going to have to to walk out at some point to to get to a first contract is that like the people from the custodial staff's union start showing up the people from the food workers union start showing up so we barely got to think of ourselves as workers. I and mean, then you're looking around and thinking, these are people who are making a lot less money than we are. But they're actually sort of showing up in solidarity with us because they're sort of thinking, well, look, the values of the union to try to make it life more you know, gratifying more for the working class, those are all our values. Those are values we have in common. And once again, it's not a kind of abstract checklist of, of morals, which if you don't meet it up, um, you know, you're going to get like uh, called out on Twitter. It's rather the sort of sense of these things that come out of the actual problems you're facing. So it's got to be a generalized version of the working class. And that's actually what, in the end, you mean by class consciousness, which is that we share certain things. I completely value the autonomy of my, of my job. But valuing the autonomy of a job, I realize I ought to value the autonomy of the, of the custodial worker who actually cleans my office. And in fact, I totally do value having a clean office. And I want to actually support the things that will make it more pleasurable and rewarding for people to be cleaning my office. And, you know, we don't have to fantasize that we're going to make the same amount of money. And I'm not feeling guilty about the amount of money I make. But what you do want to say is that everybody has got to have the access to the tools that would enable them to negotiate a life that they actually want to live. So to me, you know, to me, you can't, begin to think about the way to begin to think about solutions is to think about it in terms of people's work. That's why, as you said before, really well, education can't come first. Education is kind of the tail end of how we think about our work. Um, And that's why, you know, organizing CNAs is more important than than basically readjusting the question of how we use test scores or anything like that. Um, And that's also why you know, I have kind of limited hope um, of what will come out of the universities, but paradoxically, it's the universities that are most kind of under pressure. Public universities would have lost their funding, but are still trying to do what they want to do. Those universities are in a way the most useful ones for doing what you were describing before, producing a kind of ferment in which people try to put together their intellectual interests with their work lives to try to reshape their environment in a way that will fit them. And that's, you know, I'm feeling more optimistic than usual today because our guys won their strike. It was fun to march around with them. It was fun to be part of it. It was fun to see them think through and negotiate, you know, the contract they wanted. And it was fun to see them win. <laughs> it was totally fun to see them win.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: it was a big victory.
0: Um, what, um, what advice do you have for young people today? Say if you had son or daughter as a you know a junior in high school, kind of getting ready to, to make the decision of whether or not to, you know, uh, uh, enter the meritocratic meat grinder or to do something else. What, what would you say to them, given what we know now? You
1: no, know, I mean, it's not a super hard question, really.
0: <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's good though. It's, uh, because, I mean, in a certain sense, you can't, you
0: know, if you
1: just say, um, don't worry about, you know, the meritocratic meat grinder, what you call it, uh, you know, you're saying, yeah, you know, you're taking, your, you're, you're taking yourself away from many of the goods that American society has to, to offer. In other words, if you just sort of go off, you know, so if it's my kids... They they know they're not inheriting great wealth, <laughs> so they know they're going to have to make a living. So the minute you know, I remember my father saying to me at some point, totally didn't take. But and this is a different generation. It's a long time ago. Saying, you know, if you can learn to be a short order cook, you'll never lack for a job, whatever else happens. And that was before we knew what McDonald's and all those things were going to be. So. He was totally wrong about that. <laughs> you can be a short <laughs> order cook, and in fact, no matter how good you are whipping up fried eggs, like you know, the market changed in ways that he could not have anticipated.
0: Right.
1: But you do sort of want to say, yeah, you know, you do live in a capitalist economy. You need to find a way to make a living, and you need to figure out what what's going to matter to you. And you don't have the faintest fucking clue. You're 16 years old. So, you know, the kind of cynical answer it's also kind of true answer. And that's actually what I do with my actual kids was, no, encourage them to go to some good college. I mean, if you're going to be part of the meritocratic meat grinder, right? You want to be as high up on the meritocratic meat grinder as you can be. And you want the grinding of your meat to produce some certain <laughs> set of results. And then at some point in there, you figure out, I don't want this. Yes, well, that's when you want to say, okay, you know, figure out what you do want then figure out what you do want in a way that will, will will change I mean I if you're going to be politically active what I'd be saying is don't go be a community organizer go get some kind of day job and join a union and if they haven't got a union help them organize you you know don't go and try to like beg and plead so there's a new piece up on non-site by Adolf called um, uh, it's called very kind of like challengingly, uh, let me go get my big white man. And, and the idea but that's the that's that's title that, of it? That's the title. <laughs> and, 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 and the idea of it is that a lot of politics today consists in like, you know, going and asking people for money for the community. So whether you're asking Goldman Sachs for it or Harvard for it or whatever it is, you just go in hat in hand to rich people and you can go in a kind of humble begging and pleading mode. That was the old Booker T. Washington mode. Or you can go in the current mode, which is that, you know, you're a white racist and white supremacist, and you owe us not the reparations vote, but it's the same thing. It's going and ask the rich people for their money. Um, and and the point of it is, is that that's not the way to build a just society by going and asking rich people for their money. What you want to do is build a union and take their money away from it. You now, what you want to do is build a structure where, in fact, those rich people in that form don't exist. So uh, there's a big difference between a kind of clientelist. It's what sort of technically called um, politics, which is basically trying to pressure rich people to give you money. Um, and you know, in the wake of black lives, at the wake of you know, the murder of George Floyd, you see massive versions of that. Um, and some people are cynical about it. They're not really giving the money. And some people are really giving the money, but either way, either way going and begging Goldman Sachs to give you $4 million for whatever, you know, to mitigate harm in the community I mean, going and begging people, and the real thing, like even the defund the police thing, is that, well, you know, don't pay money for the police, pay money for the trauma you know, suffered by people in the communities. So they should have access to mental health. Well, they should have access to mental health, but that doesn't, that's just saying, you know, we can't really change the society, but maybe we can make people feel better about like the ravages that have been, you know, wrought on them by the society. Well, for sure, you got to take care of the wounded everybody would agree with that. And that's better than creating, you know, more police um, in in some important sense. But the real goal is not to take better care of the wounded. The real goal is to create a society in which not so many people are necessarily, structurally required to be wounded by uh, the profit-making mechanism. And that's, you know, that's what I'd be saying to my kids. And that's not something that really, as I think about it, any 16 year old can actually understand because they actually have to be in a world where they actually have to earn their living and see what it means and see what you give up and what you don't give up. So, yeah, you know, my, in giving this answer, if you're actually talking to a kid, the kid has already gotten really bored about 10 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) So not going to work for that reason first. And second of all, after all that, what you've given me is like you don't know. So, but that's what I got.
0: Sure. What if? Uh, I, what about um, where the labor market is going in terms of technology? It seems that uh, one thing that people are sort of scared about is, you know, what are the skills of the future or whatever. And it just we don't have any fucking clue. Um, is there any way for people to, um, I kind do of prepare themselves in some way? Because I think a lot of people are getting um, discouraged by the sort of. Techno doom saying from people like, um, it's that guy who wrote Sapiens, uh, Yuval Harari, where he's saying yeah. the technology is going to be changing so rapidly that humans won't be able to keep up with training, and so, um, they're just going to become a useless class. Um, yeah, I, you know,
1: I, um, I'm like really, a, I mean, that's not my special dog, I'm really super skeptical of that. Um, and I, you know, you really do want to say that, um, economy you know if you just think about what we've all worried about for a long time now which is that the degree to which the growth in the economy is the growth of the service sector the growth in service jobs mm. but you always say yeah but that growth in service those are those are real jobs. Those are those jobs aren't going to go away because of the technology. Um, I mean they may be altered because of technology but they're not actually so far at all close to going away to, um, because of technological changes, and you want to think, okay, from that standpoint, what if, what if my fate is to be someone who's like, you know, changing uh, the sheets, and cleaning the rooms in some downtown hotel? Um, and again, you know, it comes back to it. Can you imagine doing that? I can imagine doing that if I were doing it for six hours a day and I were paid a living wage, and like, in um, the rest of my time, I could actually. Uh, don't go take that professor walter ben michaels course on a, you know, the Scarlet ladder or screw that i could go you know make pots or screw that i could go hang out by lake bishop and just stare at the thing for a while and just sort of think deep thoughts i mean to me you know the real goal is and this you do discover you get older first of all i as they say in sister carrie everybody's going to take their misery and it's better to take your misery with money so yeah but it's Better to live in a world where everybody can stake some of their misery with a certain amount of money. Um, and that is so the, the egalitarian goal of transforming those jobs is to be the foundational goal. And, you know, if kids are worried, I mean, kids are inevitably worried about where they're gonna land on the ladder. That makes complete sense. And let's face it, their parents have taught them that. You know, no one says, Oh, I don't care what you got on the math test when you, you know, come home for the thing. I mean, everybody says, I love you no matter what you got on the math test. <laughs> you want to know what the kid got on the damn math test. So you want to know just how much you have to love him for that. So the thing about it is, is that, yeah, you know, the society is structured to do that. And I, and I, you know, it's not that competition is itself a bad thing. With the bad, I actually have zero problem. Like anybody who, you know, gets into the academic world in a certain way is actually going to be sort of competitive. Because it's a competitive world. Every time you have, someone gives a lecture, and there's a question-answer period. People are trying to trump each other in various ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What the, what's wrong with it is when the economic outcome is so linked to the competition. So say X is a bit better than arguing than, than arguing than Y. I actually haven't got a world where X takes incredible pleasure at going around and being showing how much better he or she is at arguing than Y is and then all the other Ys. The problem is when that little bit of being better at arguing produces hundreds and millions of dollars of difference in their life fortunes, Would you want to say it isn't isn't worth that difference, right? What you want is not, you want to, as we were saying before, you want to disconnect the economic outcomes from the, the, the sort of minor but real and sometimes even pleasurable, you know, differences in ability. Um, so I, you know, competition's fine. Recognize some things are good and some things are bad. You know, I don't know, but you know, like a big sports fan, I played sports. I know what it means to be mediocre in sports, but actually you can still enjoy it. But if the whole world functioned like, you know, I would live in a world where you function how good you were at sports, I'd be making $25,000 a year right now. Um, and nobody should be making $25,000 a year, even if they could never hit from the three point book, you know, they should be making something
0: yeah, you know, it, sounds, it seems like the logic of markets has just kind of infiltrated every facet of life, including education. And, and then the result is these kind of weird, uh, perverse um, incentives and a kind of metrics of, um, of success and um, productivity, and things like that. So.
1: And it's super hard to ignore. You know, before we came on, you know, I was sort of not giving you a hard time but teasing you a bit about, you know, you're precisely the kind of person who's looked at the problem. Because yeah. you're, in tutoring. but you know, I also, I mean, if you live in a capitalist economy, you're part of the problem, you know. But you live in a capitalist economy. Ninety percent of us are also part the victims, so we're we're part of the problem, but we're doing it to ourselves at the same time. And again, that's why it just does seem to be kind of collective action as workers, is is like the only way to go, and it may be a slim fucking hope. Um, for sure, it looks like a slim fucking hope, but it's better than no hope at all.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, Walter, I want to be mindful of your time, but I just have a couple other quick questions before we wrap up here. That's all right. Um, Are there any books that um, you find yourself returning to over and over again over the years that seem to be a kind of endless supply of of wisdom and inspiration? Anything that uh, you think might uh, you want to share with people?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, you're talking to a literature professor. So there's books Mm -hmm. I return to it over and over again. I don't know that I think of them as like, um, I don't know, I think of them as like, you know, supplying wisdom or inspiration. I mean, I like
0: art. Okay, uh, yeah, that's right. I know it's you're a worthwhile to think about critic.
1: just what are great novels. Um, so in in terms of, of, of reading lists, yeah, I think that, you know, there are, uh, I think it's, to me, there's like a lot of value just reading the great masterpieces of world literature Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: for example right now i'm reading proust um not for the first time but for the first time in french it's like hard in french my french is pretty good but it's not so hard it's not about not about it's not about giving you wisdom for daily life it's definitely not about the politics of you know what we hope is the late neoliberal period um but it's like its own sort of internal structure, its own own brilliance is a kind of model of a certain kind of perfection. Mm -hmm. And part of what art can do for you is precisely model that kind of perfection, give you a sense of a value which is not reducible to uh, the value of the marketplace. So I don't have, you know, it's gonna be different for everybody. Um, And it's, I don't, you know, recommend that everybody go out and read Proust, although it definitely can't hurt. Start with swans away and just go as far as you can go. But I do think there is a lot of value to, um, it goes back to the distinction you were making before when you were talking about Aquinas. So in literature and art, uh, put somewhat differently from the way you were putting it with most of the liberal arts, but it's the value of art is autotelic. It's its, its, own, it's, its own end. Um, and there's tremendous value in anything which is its own end, where the value is the thing itself. So, you know, and that's why I'm sort of staying away from the wisdom part, you know, because it's not, it's not like you read Proust and figure out how even to behave better at cocktail
0: parties. <laughs> right. There's, you know, a whole volume. If anything, you might behave worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about it is, is that you sort of feel the power of the art and the art is something which is removable from and separate from, you know, any individual kind of like how-to, even at the highest level of how-to it can give you. So there's that, um, for Political stuff, which you had in mind, you know, I don't know. You know, I would say everybody uh, actually the, the website we all do, Non Site, is a kind of good mix half of its art and half its politics. Um, and you know, I've found people who are readers of Non Site who only ever read about the art stuff, they just skip all the politics. Then there's probably many more people who only read the politics and skip the art stuff. But the people we really value because they're like the little fantasy we have of ourselves are the people who do both. We think, yeah, no you can go read like, you know. Uh, let me go get my big white man, my big white man, which is up there right now, but also go read, I think I have a piece up there right now too, which is on, a, on basically on photography and particular on a really great photographer whose work I've really admired and loved for really forever now, he did the cover of my first book, uh, Jim Welling, a New York photographer, Jim Welling. Mm-hmm. He used to be actually for many years at UCLA but is now back in New York and teaching, uh, sometimes at Princeton. And, you know, Jim's work is very beautiful and it's complicatedly beautiful. And it, it takes a while to understand it. But to me, the process of trying to figure out what it is that it's trying to do and what it is that makes it beautiful, what his ambitions are for it, yeah, that's complicated, but fun. Um, and, it takes the pleasure you experience just looking at one of those pictures and really intensifies it. So to me, that it can be different art for different people, right? But to me, that relation to art is very, very, you know, foundational for my life. And I feel like everybody, I would wish on everybody that they have some version of that. You know, it needn't be my taste, obviously, but some version of something which really is both challenging and at the same time, like, you know, Rewarding in
0: that way. Yeah. No, I think I can, in the um, Jacques-Louis David painting I had up in my um, uh, my newsletter. I think you mentioned. Um, I when I view that at the Met, I mean, I could just stare at it, and I don't know why either, and I don't think I'll ever know why. No, either. no, no, no.
1: I can. I, I'll tell you something. <laughs> if, if we ever, if we ever get really, really lucky, uh, we've never met each other until today, day. But if we ever get really, really lucky, we're both in Paris at the same time. So I learned a lot of art history from. The person who is in, in my view, and I think a lot of people's view, the major art historian of our period, Michael Fried. Mm. And um, I can give you the Michael Fried tour of about two floors in the Louvre. Oh, wow. Uh, which will not end up in, but just before the very end, we will stand in front of three great David paintings. And I can explain to you like, why you like them, yeah. <laughs> or what David is trying to do. And, and that's part of the pleasure. I mean, as you know, Uh, when you first asked me to do this, I actually just started to write you back and say, no, I'm tired of talking about higher education. (laughs) Uh, I'm actually writing more about art now. If I want to talk about politics, I'd rather go talk to some union group than talk to someone who's doing what you're doing. And I just thought, "The hell, I'm not going to do it. Um, And, but I went on the website just to like, you know, I thought I ought to know a little bit more before I say no. And I saw the David and I actually said to my wife, well, fuck, I was going to say no, but Guy's got David up on his website. He can't be all bad, right? (laughs) So there's a way in which I'll go ahead and do this. Um, And I'm glad I did because you're obviously not all bad. But I think that, that, again, that's part of a real value. Um, And really, you want to just get someone from me. You'd be like, yeah, when I hear that you say you love David, but you can't really explain why, I don't think we could ever explain it altogether why. But to me, that's like, oh, no, that's what I want you to be the kind of guy who went, we're doing the art history version of our free seminar. And then you don't get anything for it. No one's going to give you a raise for it. But you think, I can go there. I can go there maybe every other week. I don't have to go to every other one. And I'm going to sit down and some guy's going to tell me exactly what David was trying to do here at this moment, you know, in the 1890s. And what difference it made with the revolution. And what difference it made when he actually became a real Bonapartist. And what difference, why he got exiled to Brussels. And why this painting goes with that being exiled, all that stuff It's like totally interesting. Yeah. Love <laughs> and it. it really helps you understand what the power of the work is. And it is autotelic. It doesn't get you a raise.
0: Fascinating. Well, thank you very much. Uh, where could people um, find you? Do you? You're not on social media, I don't think, but do you have a website oh, yeah, or no, is it I'm more? Non site is that probably where yeah you so
1: you know I mean I publish in lots of different places a lot of stuff I publish in scholarly um but um but non site you know people who are interested in this sort of set of issues non site is definitely a kind of central thing and you know if you're uh, doing these still uh I'll get you to talk about it later on but I'm, as I mentioned adolph and I have a book coming out Right. There's a little bit of art in that book, um, but not much. A little bit of literature, not really art art, um, called No Politics, But Class Politics. And that actually deals with a lot of these issues. Um, and I think the the attraction of the book for us was most of the essays in it are reprints of essays that we've already done. Uh, okay. And some of them were available on the internet, scattered around. But the kind of heart of the book is over a period of... We did it once a week for four weeks. So we did it on Zoom. We have two younger European um, professors, intellectuals, um, Anton uh, Jaeger and Daniel Zavora. And Daniel and I have actually also been collaborators on a few things. And Anton and Daniel sort of put together a, a set of questions, discussions. And for about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, every four weeks, we just had a discussion. And then we edited it down so it didn't just go on and on forever. But there's about 50 pages of the book, maybe 60 pages of the book. It's just that discussion. And uh, I was, we're in a stage of page proofs right now. And I was always just reading through it the other day. And I was thinking, yeah, you know, this is like a more than usually fun way to get introduced to, or if you've already been introduced to, to see sort of deeper into this particular set of politics. And in particular, by a kind of class first. Uh, left politics now, and it's worth it because not all of your your uh, listeners will know this. That it's important to see that that I mean, Adolf is African American. Most of the people who are involved on the political side with Donside are I mean, Senator Johnson, Adolf Santorrea, Reed. The yeah. people outside of Don's side, Barbara Fields. That is this particular form of leftist politics. Most of its most uh, um, most of its leading writers and thinkers are in fact black. Um, And it's important to see that. It's important to see if these people who totally understand, you don't really have to explain to Adolf got Adolf's got a new book out called The South, which is kind of a memoir about his, about growing up in Jim Crow in New Orleans. So you don't have to explain to Adolf, like, you know, the horrors of racism. He totally, totally gets that. But what he totally, totally gets is the way to overcome that is not, you know,
0: the diversity around.
1: By anti-racist training in your university. Way to overcome that is universal for
0: everybody. Awesome. Well, Walter, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's, been, it's been a great uh, pleasure. And um, I continue to do the great work, work you've been doing. And I'll make sure to know uh, we'll link everything that we've been talking about in the show notes. And,
1: uh, yeah, we should definitely stay in touch. And thank you. I really actually really enjoyed this. It was like more fun than I thought it would be. The Daveed thing was a better clue
0: than the <laughs> description. So, yeah, who'd have don't, thought?
1: No, take that Daveed down.
0: Uh, yeah, you got it.
1: Yeah, I will to be in touch.
0: All right, thank you, Walter. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the No Faction Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider subscribing. Thank you.